Hello, this is uh, Joe Swanson with Carlton Fields, uh, and I'm joined today by my law partner, Aaron Weiss, uh, with Carlton Fields. I'm in the Tampa office. Aaron is in Miami. Uh, I am the chair of the firm Cybersecurity and Privacy Practice Group, and I'm uh, uh, very excited to be joined by Aaron today. Um, Aaron is, as I mentioned, a shareholder in Miami, very experienced litigator uh, with a, a, a deep knowledge uh, on class actions and in particular consumer protection statutes, both federal uh, and state. And so uh, given um, the nature of our discussion here today, uh, really pleased to have Aaron with us to, to talk about um, an emerging trend or an emerging claim in Florida, and that involves the Florida Security of Communications Act. But before getting into the substance, I want to welcome Aaron and thank him for his time. Aaron, good to have you. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about these new claims on the Florida Security of Communications Act related to recording people's web surfing. And uh, also we'll have an opportunity to see how that fits into the wider picture of consumer data protection cases, in particular, how a lot of these claims are being prosecuted as class actions, and then how some of the claims, depending on the state, are prosecuted as governmental investigations. So uh, that's an area, this topic is certainly not going to go away, and it blends uh, expertise in data protection and in class actions, and something that we both do, that we've worked together on, and this may be an area uh, as things progress that we'll have a chance to work together more on the future. Uh, so we wanted to give everybody an overview of how some of these claims are developing. But the, the first thing we wanted to talk about are very specifically this new set of claims under the Florida Security of Communications Act. It's really the Florida Wiretapping Act. The, the federal statute is the Federal Wiretapping Act, and Florida has its own equivalent. And this law has been on the books for a very long time. Uh, there's different states that people you know, talk about one-party consent states, two-party consent states. Can you record a message, uh, a phone call in some states? Florida is what you call a two-party consent state, which means you need, broadly speaking, you need the consent of both parties on the line. In some states that are one-party consent states, you only need the consent of one person on the line, which means you can make a call and record it, and you've given consent, and that's the one-party consent. Uh, in the traditional recording phone calls, there have been some cases over the years, not a ton, but there has been litigation over the years in Florida as to how you uh, deal with these uh, privacy claims in, in recording private phone calls. Uh, but this new set of cases has to deal with, it's a little bit of a wrinkle, but it has to deal with recording uh, website activity. And I really thought when, you know, these cases came in as class actions, and I've been studying them uh, as somebody who does a lot of class actions and consumer class actions. But when I hear wiretapping, I, I really think of, uh, well, sort of, I think of the wire, the, the television program, and people installing wiretaps. And um, I, I've had one criminal case in my uh, almost 20 years of practice, but I know Joe Swanson has was uh, the lead cyber prosecutor in Tampa for several years. And, and unlike me, Joe has actually seen a federal wiretap. So I thought no better person to really uh, delve into what real wiretapping is than, than somebody who can really talk to talk. Happy to happy to do it, and you know, 
I, I think it'd be helpful, Aaron, for our listeners, um, given that helpful background you gave on this law, to sort of explain what the paradigmatic claim is under the law um, with regard to uh, uh, phone recordings, phone phone calls, and and maybe what is what's kind of your garden variety case. And I know you've you've handled dozens of of these, and then we'll pivot to a discussion of how they're being recast or or or, or alleged these days vis-a-vis a company's website. Sure. The, I mean, the garden variety claim in Florida Security of Communications Act claims is it's pretty much as you would think it is. If you, somebody says, this is the wiretapping statute, what is prohibited? And the argument is what's prohibited is recording somebody's phone call without their consent. Now, it comes up a lot, and, and we do a lot of work, for instance, advising companies on, on what you have to say when you're, you're uh, recording outgoing, uh, when you're making outgoing phone calls, when you're getting incoming phone calls. Everybody's heard them whenever you call a, you know, a prominent company or even a not prominent company. Uh, this call may be recorded for training purposes. That's the disclosure that is the consent. And you say, if you don't want to stay on the call or you don't want to be recorded, you could hang up. And I'm broadly speaking, and if if you're listening to this podcast and and you really say, oh, we we better put that in, give us a call and and we'll help you out on making sure you have compliant language. But but that's sort of the the core of it. Uh, Companies sometimes over the years have gotten sued if they don't have uh, such a recording or sometimes they could have uh, some type of glitch in place where they're recording phone calls that come in. Um, I know I always think of I had one situation where uh, you have some of these companies now have the, the callback uh, information where you, you call you know whatever company, you, know, you can be on hold for 20 minutes. Or, by the way, if you don't want to be on hold, just put your number in and we'll give you a call back. So sometimes you have a scenario where you get the call back and, and the system is in provision to, to play the uh, disclosure meshes on the callback. So over the years, uh, people have been sued both individually and in, in class actions for uh, recording the calls without permission. Now, let me just briefly talk about the the non-class action cases. Sometimes you'll see those, uh, not that infrequent fact pattern, um, disputes with people sometimes really, um, you could think family law disputes, divorce proceedings, or other just situations where people don't like each other, uh, and used to be friends or used to be um, not adverse to each other and now became adverse to each other. So that you see sometimes, and that those are pretty straightforward. You know, my ex-wife uh, uh, didn't uh, is recording my calls, I didn't give her permission, and you know, those are somewhat up or down. Was there permission? Was there consent? And so forth. The bigger liability cases and the ones that really get corporations involved, the plaintiff um, playbook is to file such a claim as a class action. And these claims could be pretty conducive to class actions because the the damages could be pretty big, uh, their statutory damage is up to $1,000 per violation. So uh, they get filed as class actions. 
there hasn't been a uh, ton of success historically that what I'll call the plaintiffs uh, bar prosecuting these cases uh, has had is because, uh, you know, number one, consent can be awfully individualized. Um, and number two, it can be pretty hard to determine who is on the other line. So you call, it's, you know, often hard to determine who the subscriber is, who who picked the call. So that's where historically a lot of those cases uh, have fallen apart. Um, I happen to do a, a lot of work on the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the, the TCPA. This is what people call colloquially the, the robocall statute or, or something like that. A lot of the concepts that are uh, in the TCPA will really, to the extent these new cases um, you know, have legs, I really do think a lot of the TCPA concepts will uh, follow through. And, and the other thing I'll note, uh, this group of cases that have been filed in Florida, and we'll get to, you'll ask me about that next, but as I, I mentioned the TCPA, the plaintiff's lawyers who are prosecuting this new set of cases um, really made their bones on, on the TCPA. So it's uh, two or three law firms that have filed all of the suits, and, and they are, um, you know, to the core, and they're very good. They're TCPA lawyers, so they, they know all the concepts, and I really do think that's where a lot of the action will be on, on these cases as, as they play out. And, and Aaron, before getting to this this new wave of cases, just wanted to follow up on one item you, you mentioned, and that was statutory penalties per violation. What What is a violation? Is it conceivably every time a phone call is 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 made, you know, times thousands of phone calls, thousands of members in a class. Is that why these cases have garnered the attention of the plaintiff's bar um, and, and been as prevalent as they have been in the past? Yeah, absolutely. So just to talk a little bit about, you know, class actions in general and the difference between class actions where you have non-statutory damages, like sort of actual damages and statutory damages. So you could have a class action. Let me just give my favorite example that I always use. And you could say, well, I went to the store and, um, you know, the, the potato chips, they said they were six ounces and, and I went and weighed them and it was a humongous bag. And it turned out that it was not a full six ounces of potato chips, that this company systematically underfills its potato chips. So I want to get my damages and represent a class of people who didn't get as, as many potato chips as they were promised for. And assume there's not a statutory claim at issue. You're just saying, you know, breach of contract, the promise was you were promised six ounces of potato chips and the, the bags were underfilled. So your damages in, in that example, and I'm going to fast forward, there could be all kinds of other problems with that case, but your damages presumably are you know, the, the difference in the amount of potato chips that you bargained for. And, and what you actually got, and, you know, just have to figure that out. How much are the potato chips? How much are they at, at one grocery store versus another? And, and it's, you know, sort of what you're going for, the actual damages, the price of the potato chips that you were deprived. Well, differences in a statutory damages class action, you don't have to do that. So for statutes, like I mentioned, the TCPA, that's very popular. You get $500 minimum damages per violation. Uh, you have the FDCPA, for instance, you get $1,000 for that. That one's a little different because you only get 1000 in an aggregate. Uh, you have FACTA, which is the statute with printing too many credit cards on receipts. That's a, a hundred to $1,000 per um, willful violation. So 
when you if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you want to bring a class action and you're looking at what you have to prove, what are the hard things, you know, what are the easy things, a statutory damages case has some attraction because you're, you're already moving past how to quantify the individual damages. You don't have to deal with that because you have the statutory damages. So that's why um, in a case like this, statutory damages can be, be quite attractive. Got it. And, and that may explain the phenomenon um, that has taken hold in the last few months, and, and that is filing putative class actions under the uh, Florida Security of Communications Act, but with kind of a different theory. And that theory is not about phone calls, but about websites. And in fact, it's become apparently so attractive, Aaron, that I noticed yesterday the same individual uh, filed multiple class actions under this statute in, it may have been Miami-Dade or, or Broward County just yesterday. So we've certainly seen an uptick in these. Um, what is the theory behind these claims? So at a core, and, and yeah, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the details, but the basic claim is that if you are going on uh, these websites, that some of these uh, websites of very prominent companies. If you looked at the some of these recent cases and, and matched it up against the Fortune 500, for instance, you'll you'll see quite a few matches. But basically, the common website software that brand name companies are using are tracking your keystrokes and your browsing history. And the argument is that conduct falls under the ambit of the Florida Securities of Communications Act, you know, aka the Florida Wiretapping Act. Uh, it is an untested theory. These are new cases, uh, but there are a lot of cases that have been filed within the year since this year started. Really, I guess you know we're we're uh, recording this in in the middle of April 2021. So within the last few months, really, uh, and against prominent companies, and they're all filed as class actions, and they're all filed by the same uh, set of law firms who are. TCPA have been TCPA lawyers, and as Joe mentioned, a lot of the cases are filed by literally the same name plaintiff. Uh, so we will see what happens with these cases uh, in in 2021. Really, will they have legs or or will they not? So that's uh, that's what we're here to look forward or to one way or another see what happens. And and recognizing that we are you know relatively early in 2021, and and most of these cases have only been on file for you know, a, a month or two, or in some cases only a day. Um, but nonetheless, kind of drawing on your wealth of experience in this area, Aaron, what are what are some strategies that you expect to see the defense bar, um, you know, deploying against these claims, either because they've worked in defending against TCPA or more garden variety Florida Security Communications Act claims, or just given your study of these claims, what you what would be in your toolkit, so to speak? Sure. So the first thing I, I would always mention is where is the case and, and can you, if it's not in a forum that you like, can you get it to a different forum? So that really means two things. The first thing that means is if the case is filed in state court and almost all these cases, in fact, I think all of them have started in state court, can the case be removed to federal court? Um, under the Class Action Fairness Act, what likely will be the uh, governing thing is if the company is sued, is a outside a, is a non-Florida-based company uh, or not incorporated in Florida. There's a decent chance that such claims could be moved to federal court. 
if they are the Florida company, it can get a little more uh, difficult to remove the claim to federal court. Not impossible. Um, and there's you know, some recent, very recent within the last month, 11th Circuit case law on that. But um, without getting too far in the weeds, and if you do have any very specific questions, if you're a Florida company that has one of these suits, there's a, a sort of a backdoor strategy to try to get such a case removed to federal court. But that's the first thing. And I've seen most of these cases that you know look to me as possibly removable have, in fact, been removed to the federal court. Some, uh, either strategically the defendants decided to stay in state court or determined that they were not removable. Hard to say, but there's somewhat of a perception. And historically, there's been a perception that federal court is a more favorable forum uh, for such types of cases. Um, I don't know if that um, historic perception, uh, at least in Florida, will, will always be the case. The 11th Circuit recently came out with a decision on what's called class ascertainability. In other words, do you have to have a way to identify everybody in the class that the 11th Circuit had historically had in an unpublished decision, a pretty tough standard, in a published decision issued earlier this year, the 11th Circuit did away with that. Um, on the other hand, in Florida State Court, you have an automatic appeal of a class certification decision to the appeals court, whereas in the federal system, the right to appeal is discretionary. Um, and then there's a perception that the recent spate of judges that have been appointed in Florida, at least in the appellate courts where they are all appointed in the state courts in Florida, trial courts, the judges are a, a combination of appointed and elected, but the appellate judges are all appointed. There has been a push, at least with the last two governors, Governor Scott and Governor DeSantis, to um, perhaps look for judges uh, on the appellate court to ascribe to a certain perhaps more corporation-friendly uh, philosophy. Now, that's that's really just somewhat speculation. I don't want to suggest that you have any guarantee, depending on which appellate court you're in, but um, that is something to think about. Uh, and I know there's a perception that the judiciary, at least on the appellate level in Florida, uh, has markedly changed in the last few years. So just something to think about. And then the other forum thing, and really is, is what I call the, the drop the mic defense in any class action, is arbitration. If you have an arbitration clause um, in a consumer agreement, I don't want to say it's, it ends the case and there's some difficult uh, you know, things that could play out. But if you're dealing with a situation where you are a potential plaintiff and you've agreed to arbitration with the company based on prevailing Supreme Court and 11th Circuit and Florida appellate case law, there's a very good chance that if you press the arbitration argument, the case will get sent to arbitration, and uh, both the Florida Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court have found that a class waiver in an arbitration clause is enforceable. So in other words, you go to individual arbitration. So if you have an arbitration clause, that's, that's you know, far and away the, the most uh, significant uh, potential case ender. And you know, a lot of times it's it's a question of if you're passively browsing a website, have you agreed to arbitration? And and that may be a question of have you in fact entered a, an arbitration? So it's that that will be a, an interesting area to to test on these cases. And again, it's not like uh, the person to go back to my potato chips. When you buy a bag of potato chips from the grocery store, 
you're you know the you don't have an arbitration clause on the bag of potato chips. On the other hand, if you sign up for cable, you've signed a whole bunch of disclosures, presumably, and one of those is you've agreed to arbitration. These cases sort of might be in the middle, where if you're passively going through a website, you know, did you click on a box? Was the notice of arbitration buried on the bottom? And, and that's where you know that's where a lot of the um, of the uh, the devil and the details on this case law will shake out. So that may be very uh, circumstance specific. And and speaking of of that. Aaron, when it comes to arbitration, whether in these types of cases or any of the consumer cases that that you defend, how how is that defense raised? Is that something you raise at the outset and you try to get out early? Is it something that requires the development of a factual record and so the company is going to be stuck for a while dealing with this? How does that work generally and in particular in these website cases? Uh, how do you see that being raised and, and litigated? Sure. So let's sort of talk about the scenario where a company is sued and they believe the company believes it has an arbitration clause that would be applicable as to any claim filed against it by that particular named plaintiff, leaving off to the side other plaintiffs. Um, whether it's in federal court or state court, the company would then move to compel arbitration. Uh, depend. I mean, that's Sometimes you call it a motion to dismiss based on arbitration, depending on whether you're in state court or federal court. But that's that's more semantics. What happens there is the the plaintiff can say, well, yeah, I guess you've got me. I've agreed to arbitration. Uh, spoiler alert, most plaintiffs won't do that. They want to fight it. And they'll say, well, no, I never saw the arbitration clause or, or the like. Uh, the question, as I said, really becomes of uh, – was there a contract formed? And uh, under Florida law, and really it's common to other states as well, in these cases, you know, if you're not dealing with a situation, as I mentioned, where you have like an actual written contract, where you bought your car or signed up for your cable and you, you signed something, where the real uh, tension is if it's sort of something passive, like going through a website or was there a click box, uh, you know, they're uh, either side may ask for sort of limited discovery on taking a deposition or two of determining whether or not there was a, a binding contract form. There's theoretically the, the possibility of even having abbreviated trial on the issue of contract formation. Um, once the contract is formed, and I'm going to sort of fast forward a bit, most arbitration clauses these days have what is called a delegation clause, either directly or indirectly, that basically say questions over the scope of the arbitration will get go to the arbitrator. So it means, if, is this claimant issue something that has to go to arbitration? If you have a delegation clause, that question goes to the arbitrator. Um, but the question of was the contract formed is something that goes by the court. And then, like, if you're dealing with these browse wraps, or when I say browse wrap, is like a sort of a small thing at the bottom of a website that you don't necessarily have to click on. That's sort of what's called a browse wrap. So those questions, uh, the, the court answers those. And, um, you know, you, you bring up some some interesting um, concepts about what does the what does the website say, not just about arbitration, but I wonder, too, about consent. I mean, you talk about the, the kind of garden variety phone call case, big issue is going to be consent. And was there a disclosure, a disclaimer at the beginning of the of the phone call? Well, here, 
the theory is I was on Company X's website. Company X was monitoring what I did on the website. Um, that violates this Security of Communications Act. What would be the analogous arguments from the defense side about consent? Would it be disclosures in a privacy policy that say, hey, we put cookies, uh, you know, we, we, we use certain tracking mechanisms for visitors to our website? Do you expect those to become prominent here? Yeah, Joe, and th that's exactly it. So one of the defenses that um, companies in this situation have is they will say, well, our privacy policy said that we, you know, as, as you described the cookies or basically say that the, the type of conduct that is at issue in this case, there is a disclosure that was said we may do this. I'm sort of paraphrasing it. And Joe, I know you write a lot of um, and your group writes a lot of uh, consumer privacy policies for all kinds of companies. And one of the things that you and I and, and others in the group have talked about it a lot is we could write the best privacy policy ever. And it could be, you know, you could say this is, we've tested this. We've looked at all the court decisions. This is, this is great. You know, if you have this privacy policy, you will immunize yourself to, uh, to almost all the, uh, the, the claims that could come up. The problem is that, you know, the wrinkle is you have to make sure that the privacy policy was properly disclosed to a plaintiff. So it's sort of the same type of argument that you would have as to was an arbitration agreement properly disclosed. It's the same question of was a privacy policy disclosed. In fact, a lot of the decisions, and there haven't been that many, but the decisions that have come out in general on analyzing whether privacy policies have been adequately disclosed are, in fact, decisions that looked at arbitration terms because they're typically, uh, it's the same type of thing. And that, that's always the tension, that if you are in a uh, marketing to a consumer you know, through websites or um, somewhat passive thing, you just, it, it's sometimes tough to figure out the way to make sure that the customer has agreed to your, your fancy terms. So um, that's the tension in the case law. And that's where, I, you know, a lot of these privacy policies are that I've seen are very good. And if they are enforceable, they will be, um, you know, really strong defenses. It's the problem or are they enforceable? The other tricky part and where the arbitration gets in, into a little tricky and I'm meshing it and this gets a bit into the weeds, but what there's a bit of a, a caution for a defendant. So if you have your privacy policy and your arbitration policy, sometimes it's even in the same document. Uh, sometimes they're both you know radio buttons together at the bottom of, of the same website. Little, you know, caution that if you press arbitration early on in the case and you lose that, the court says, "Well, no, there's no binding arbitration clause. This wasn't delivered to the customer adequately. Um, you know, just throw out there. Are you, if you're the defendant, have you now really imperiled your chances to enforce your privacy policy, which otherwise is a merits defense? So that's got to be really careful there. You know, you want to uh, strategically think if you're a defendant to, uh, you don't want to lose one defense." Uh, and then lose your other defense at the same time. Well, and, and it, among the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation was, you know, the overlap between these consumer class actions and the privacy work that you and, and, and I and others in our group do in terms of drafting and, and advising on the placement of these privacy policies. And, you know, one of the issues with 
some of the privacy statutes that we'll talk about in the second module is a requirement that you give notice at the point of collection of any data uh, of your privacy policies and what categories of information you collect. And there's always this hand-wringing among the clients, given how um, ubiquitous data collection is these days and the different ways in which it occurs. Could be through an app, could be through a website. If it's through the website, is it on every page? And you start getting into these questions about where do I need to have these privacy policies disclosed so as to be compliant with the privacy statute. It now sounds to me, based on what you're saying, Aaron, that there's also another reason to be thoughtful about the placement of these privacy policies, and that is because they may ultimately bear on the enforceability of and and the viability of some of these arguments about consent, if that were to be a way you would try to defeat these claims. Oh, absolutely. And it's going to be in any, it's not just the Florida Security of Communications Act, it's any types of claims under any of these privacy policies, well, that any of these data privacy uh, rules, laws, statutes, uh, if your defense is my privacy policy permitted it, well, you better make sure you deliver the, the privacy policy. Um, just a couple, just flavor of some potential merits defenses that are potentially out there on these types of claims. One is what's called the business extension exception. What this basically says is that the communication must be intercepted by equipment furnished by a provider of uh, wire or electric communication service in the ordinary course of its business. What that basically means, that that sounds like a bit of gibberish, um, but basically the the argument is, were the recording system furnished uh, essentially by the the telephone or wire communications, basically the the phone company? Um, that's sort of the defense that will play out. It all depends on if you know what this website tra- tracking software. It may not map that the website tracking software may not map that well onto the business extension uh, software uh, extension argument. We'll just see how it plays out. Another defense that has had some success in these Florida security communications is the the good faith defense. Uh, That basically says that uh, the statute itself says a good faith determination that Florida or federal law permitted the uh, conduct complained of. So that's, you know, again, if the argument is to be made that there was uh, this was permitted under Florida law or federal law, the, the conduct is okay. Again, it's very fact specific and. It's almost it's maybe a little hard to that if the thing is a violation, how does a good faith defense get in? There may be an argument that like a quasi federal preemption argument that if this conduct was permitted under federal law, that would be a good faith defense. So we, we'll see. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to mention, again, these are all we haven't seen how this plays out yet in the case law because these cases are all new, but class defenses and, and a lot of it will focus on. You know, can you um, identify the individual uh, class members? Um, you know, we, as I mentioned, the um, case law in the 11th Circuit recently sort of veered way off. I mean, it was going one way, and it took a hard right turn or hard left turn and went the other way. But there's still an argument that in, in other parts of the class certification inquiry that you still uh, shouldn't be able to certify a class if you can't identify who the class member is, and in, in the context of a Florida Security of Communications Act based on a website tracking, question is, you know, who was on the particular computer or tablet at the time? So, so those are things that will play out. But, you know, the short of it is, 
These are a new set of cases. Um, plaintiff's lawyers who file these are very good, very ambitious. Uh, these are, I wouldn't say it's a test case. One or two cases are a test case. You know, a dozen, a dozen and a half cases are, you know, that's a trend. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I think the next year will be notable to watch and how these cases develop. And, and the other thing is if the, the plaintiffs have some success with these cases, will it uh, be a roadmap for other data privacy cases? Well, um, Aaron, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you today about these topics. And without further ado, uh, thank everybody for their time and attention. And uh, Aaron, appreciate your time and, and wisdom and look forward to continuing the conversation. No, of course. And thanks, Joe. And if anybody, you know, thought this was interesting and they have any questions for us, I'm sure you could find us on the Carlton Fields website rather than give out our contact information. We're both pretty easy to find and we'd be glad to talk about any of these things with you. Thank you. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. To learn more about our cybersecurity and data privacy practice, visit carltonfields.com. Thanks for listening.